Let's pray together. Lord, as we uh, approach this passage, it's a challenging and difficult passage to understand. I pray that your spirit would be present with us as we try to make sense of it. Lord, speak to our hearts and communicate something about your goodness and your grace, Lord, this morning we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. When someone is about to preach, this is how not to increase their confidence. Hey John, this is a really difficult passage, no, pre- no pressure, but you have to explain it. What's going on there? <laughs> I was speaking to one of my friends last week and I said I might have bitten off more than I can chew with this passage. This is a difficult passage of scripture. However, I don't think we should ignore it and I think there's something important that we can learn from it. So I'm going to read it again because I remember I had read the Bible I'd read the Gospel of Luke many times, and I remember when I was 17, probably reading Luke for the however many at the time, I read this passage and I'm like, is this in the Bible? With, with, I don't remember reading this before. Is Jesus, is he? No, maybe this is one of those sections that's not really supposed to be in the Bible. So let's read it again, and then we'll, we'll go on with it. So Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this that I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be a manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to dig. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do. When I lose my job, uh, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called each one of the master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of oil. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or uh, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. I feel old saying this, but it is 20 years ago or so that I came across this passage, and ever since then, every now and then, it comes to mind, and I try to figure out what it, what it means. So actually, when I was asked to do a sermon, I thought, okay, I'm going to try to, try to do this passage. I don't know what it means, but I'm going to try to study it and figure out. And uh, so you may, be, uh, you may disagree with me, but my purpose is twofold in addressing this passage. Is that firstly, I have fascination in this passage. 
It was an interesting one because it's the type of passages never featured in the Sunday school stories, right? They did like the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, and then this one, never to be seen, right? I hope that it will reignite your interest in the word too. Sometimes we're so familiar with passages that get preached on, and the same ones get preached on frequently, that some of these other ones, just it's kind of in the parking lot of, I don't really know how to deal with this, and I'm not going to try, okay? So I'm hoping this will reignite your study in the word. And I was encouraged when I read one of the commentators, and he basically said, I think this is what the pastor said. You could say this, or it could say this. On days of the month which are even, I believe this, and days of the month which are odd, I believe that. It's a difficult passage for sure. And there's a lot of challenges in interpretation. Now this is a passage which I think we could have done well to just have a video camera. right? If we had video cameraed what's going on, and I think if we had seen Jesus' face and seen who he was looking at, I think we could have figured out a little bit more. In the 1960s, it was the first time that the U.S. Uh, presidential debate was televised. And, the P- and so up until that point, it had been on the radio only, and people had listened in. But this was the first time it was televised. And the people who listened to it on the radio, they came to the conclusion that Richard Nixon won the debate. But the people that watched it on video, they came to the conclusion that J.F. Kennedy won the debate. So it really depends. Like if you... We don't have a video camera, unfortunately, to see what Jesus was saying, to look, see what he, who he was pointing his eyes at. But we have to try to come to some understanding of what the passage means, but with the words that we have, with the record that we have. So if you want to understand more about how to manage studying the passage, come back next week for Jonathan Platts when he's going to be talking about how to manage expository preaching. But we have to deal with this passage with what we have. Context matters. I love the NBA. And um, when I was growing up, there was all, when I would watch these highlight reels, there's a fat, you know, Michael Jordan dunking from the three throw line and all these kinds of... There was one, though, which I never really understood. It was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He grips the ball. He does his usually fake turns, sky hook, and he scores. And then this was part of the, the, the highlight reel. I was like, why? I mean, it's a great shot. I love the sky hook. I still practice it every now and then. I'm not that good, though. But I was, why, is, why does this thing feature on every single highlight reel? I've never really understood it. And then it was only 20 years later. I was watching a video on YouTube, and it was basically the shot which he, he passed Wilt Chamberlain's scoring record of 31,000-something points. Okay, so that was the reason why it was important. Context is important. Just watching the shot by itself, yeah, great shot. What does it mean? I don't know. But then it was years later that I found out, okay, if you, if you understand it in the context of when it happened, oh, it was amazing, one shot, but he, he, was, he was becoming the highest scorer of all time. So I'm hoping that at the end of this study, you will be more enlightened and not more confused. And if you are more confused, which you may be, and if you disagree with my conclusions, I hope that you will go home and study this passage. That sounds like a bit of a cop-out kind of a plan, but... Here we go. Now this passage has been uh, given kind of a few different ways of interpreting it. One of them is just like a general principle. You can learn a good example, from a good lesson from a bad example. So the general lesson is, use your wealth for kingdom purposes. Okay, and this whole thing about, you know, putting your money into your friends so that you'll secure your eternal dwelling. It's like, well, you know, Jesus didn't really mean that. 
There's the other side of things, which is just like, well, Jesus really probably didn't mean any of this parable, so let's just park this in the parking lot of we don't know what to do with this. And to be quite frank, you know, there, there seems to be a lot of like unconvincing explanations. You know, the, you know, the manager, you know, he was dishonest. You know, and then I, I read one commentary which was like, actually, you know, the manager, he's actually pointing to Jesus. And somehow this is pointing to the cross and I just wasn't convinced. Right. So where are we going to go and how do we set up the reasonable parameters for determining how do we interpret this passage? Did this passage just come out of nowhere or did Luke actually mean something when he included it here, when he included it after the three parables that have just gone before it? In Matthew's Gospel, the you cannot serve two, two masters was inserted in a completely different section of the book, which was actually part of the Sermon on the Mount, which we went on before. But in Luke's Gospel, he's recorded it and kept it in this part of the, uh, the, the, the book. So let's, let's, let's move ahead. So the passage that we come to comes after three parables, which have already been um, mentioned, the lost sheep the lost coin, the lost son, and all of those were addressing a complaint by the Pharisee. And the complaints by the Pharisees was that Jesus is welcoming sinners and he's eating with them. So this is happening during a time when Jesus is traveling to to Jerusalem. And there's loads of times when the Pharisees are there and there's lots of contrast between the rich and the poor, tax collectors and sinners. And I would say one of the highlights of this passage as we go through, as we get through, we're at chapter 16, where by the time Jesus gets to chapter 19, will be when Zacchaeus finally hears the message of Jesus and he miraculously and fantastically changes his life and he responds to the gospel and he gives away his money. We get the impression through this passage as we come to it as well that the Pharisees have been trying to get Jesus onto their side. Okay, they're trying pretty hard as well. He's, actually, he's been invited to have meals at their houses a couple of times. You can see that in chapter 11 and chapter 14. The Pharisees are actually the ones that come to him at one point and tell, you know, uh, Herod, you know, he's trying to get you. You, know, you might need to be careful. But yet, while they seem to be trying to pull Jesus over to their side, there seems to be some kind of growing tensions. And Jesus is just telling them off one time after another time after another time. And by now, chapter 16, they're grumbling. Why is Jesus accepting and welcoming sinners and tax collectors? They've had a run-in with Jesus about the fact that the disciples don't wash their hands properly before the meal. And then Jesus kind of turns around and says, well, actually, you're the ones who are actually responsible for the death of all the prophets that have happened since Abel all the way to Zechariah. Jesus on the side takes his disciples and says, you know those Pharisees? Just beware of them, okay? Be careful about those guys. And in fact, the, the, the relationship with the Pharisees will get more and more strained. By, by the time Jesus has arrived at Jerusalem, the Pharisees will have um, got so worked up with Jesus that they're trying to destroy him, which read that as essentially they're trying to murder him. So let's jump into our passage now. That's some of the overall context. We're going to run through verse by verse with the passage. And then I'm going to try to give an interpretive framework which tries to explain this passage. So let's go. So, like I said, um, we come after the three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. Let's jump into verse 1. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his positions. So, it tells us here in verse 1 that the, one of the audiences of Jesus in this passage is the disciples. However, we know that by the time the, uh, the passage ends... It's the Pharisees which are giving a response to it, and Jesus addresses the Pharisees. And we also know that from the beginning of chapter 15, 
that the context of this overall section is the fact that Jesus is welcoming tax collectors and sinners and eating with them. Now, once we enter the parable, this accusation comes to the manager's, uh, to the rich man's ears. It seems to be something which is starting to grow in public knowledge. He's been wasting, and the wasting, it's not specified here what exactly he was doing. Was he taking the money and buying things, or was he uh, swindling the people who were coming and borrowing things from the rich man? The funny thing which is interesting here is for the the argument that this parable is linked to the previous section is that some of the vocabulary is similar. So the idea here when it says that he was wasting, it's using the same word squandering that was used to describe the prodigal son in the previous parable. So he's, um, he's squandering and wasting the master's wealth. One of the things that's happening is the guy, he's an estate manager, he's a steward and he's failing at his fundamental responsibility. He's not failing at some kind of side responsibility that he had. Okay, He had the responsibility to, I don't know, protect the property or to protect the kids of the, the owner. No, maybe those were side things, I don't know. But he was failing at his fundamental responsibility. His fundamental responsibility was to be a good steward. And of the things that he was a steward of, he was being a bad steward of them. And somehow the word got to the rich man. So the manager goes and gives him notice. So we move to like... The problem statement. So, in verse 2, he says, He called him and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be a manager anymore. He essentially calls him and says, Is this true? And then he asks him to give an account. And this seems totally bizarre, right? It's like, you want to take a big... I don't know, let's say you want to take S&C Leveling to court, you know, and you want them to check their books, and you tell them, Okay, we want you guys to sort out your own books and give us a report. You don't do that. You call in auditors and you say, look, we need people from outside to come and audit everything to make sure everything is done properly. But what happens here is that the master, the rich man, he kind of foolishly says, okay, you're the guy that swindled me. Now you go, sort out the books and tell me what happened badly. It seems lenient. It seems almost foolish compared to, I mean, considering the fact that this is the man that's defrauded him the whole time. And it seems very different from some of the other pictures that we have of the master figures in other, other of Jesus' parables. I'll give you an example just later on in Luke 19, when there's the parable of the ten minas, or the ten, uh, ten talents. It's in Luke's gospel where the master actually says, bring the guy who defrauded me, who took the one talent and dug it in the ground. Bring him before me and slaughter him before my eyes. It's pretty severe. Huh? This is not the kind of master type figure that we see in this parable which is like another one of those things that you say what? this doesn't seem to fit in with everything else that Jesus has been saying so far now what happens here is that the master asks him to give an account and there's just kind of silence from the manager there's kind of like silent acknowledgement of guilt he also gets put in this kind of weird kind of grace period it's like this two weeks notice to continue to defraud, set the books right and give, give an account to the manager. And by the way, after that, you're out. So it doesn't seem to be the main kind of um, character that we see. And it also doesn't seem to fit in with the characters that we see of the shepherd, the woman and the father figure that we have from the, the previous three parables. Which is maybe another argument why some people say, no, no, the, after the parable of the lost son... This is the place where we cut and we say the context has changed. 
Because occasionally writers will actually change the context, right? It's not like everything always is informed by the stuff around it. Sometimes the author says, okay, I'm done with this subject. Now I'm moving on to something else. Problem part two. The manager says to himself, what shall I do now? Verse three. My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. He kind of talks to himself. And this is another place where some commentators said, aha, this is a clue to say that it's linked to one of the previous parables because this looks very similar to what the prodigal son did. He's there talking to himself. And he actually is talking to himself in a kind of a self-interested way. Just like, what am I going to do? What's going to be my solution? Kind of bemoans his solution and he comes up with a, with a plan. Hear the words of the, of the prodigal son. How many, what's his first thing that he says? Sure, there's a thing that he'll go and he'll, uh, he'll say various things, but the first thing that the prodigal son says is, what shall I do? How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I will perish here in hunger? It kind of looks similar, actually, to me. What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. He seems to assume that he's going to escape with his life, you know. And this was apparently not very common because in the ancient East, one of the commentators was mentioning, Kenneth Bailey, I think, was that these kind of crimes, you would be punished severely for these type of things. Of course he would lose his job, but he would likely be punished very, very severely. So he would be moved from a very high position in society to one where potentially he would be doing manual labor. And then he just basically says, okay, I'm, I'm too proud to beg. This throws kind of huge amount of like moral aspersions on this manager too. Like what kind of person is this? You know? He's a suspect person. So, so you've got a, this parable of Jesus where the master seems to be kind of a bit suspect. The manager seems to be suspect. And then we come to the middle part. So the way that the passage is arranged, it's kind of arranged like the master, uh, the steward and the master. Then you've got problem statements and you've got the solution. Then the working out of the solution and then the master and the steward again at the end. So this is the kind of the middle part of the whole thing. So he comes up with his ideas. I know what I'll do so that, I, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he makes a plan, knowing that he will lose his job. And he comes up with a plan that will put all of his master's debtors, all of his master's debtors, somehow indebted to him so that he will secure his future. Now there's all sorts of explanations of why this would work if you live in an honor society. Basically, the master would suddenly, if he's given if he's known to have given massive discounts to all of the people that owed him stuff, he'll suddenly become super popular. Then he can't punish the manager because the manager has been the one who made him super popular to start with. The other thing is, is that basically none of the people could tell on each other because if you tell that you got a discount and you think it was done dishonorably, somehow you'll be, you need to kind of keep the line with everyone else that's borrowed from the master too. So he didn't know. Uh, so this was a, the other thing which kind of surprised me. When you move on to ne the next verse, you come to the solution and the enacting of how he actually worked all these things out. So he called in each one of the master's debtors. He asked the first one, how much do you owe my master? I mean, what kind of steward manager was this? He didn't even know how much the guy owed. It's like, I want to fix the book. Actually, I don't have a book. I'm creating the book. <laughs> how much did you owe? Strange. And if you look at the, the uh, you know, how, how much did he owe? You know, he, and if you look at the amount of indebtedness, it's, it's massive amounts of debt. The, uh, solution part two, he continues on. 900 gallons. I did notice in the Pew Bibles, one of them said 800 gallons. 
I guess, to be honest, it doesn't really make a huge difference. It's a huge quantity. Uh, 900 gallons of olive, uh, olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and uh, make it 450. 50% discount. Bargain basement, you know, like uh, he's quickly getting his safety net set in place. You know, 50% off, come here, come to me. It's interesting how he says, come, come quickly, come quickly. Sit down quickly, just do the, be- do the, uh, do the discount. He's, all, he's doing all of this as well with the master's uh, estate, right? It's not like he's doing anything out of his own pocket. All of this favor is being bought with the money of the master, right? I just had a quick look online just to kind of give an idea of how much 900 gallons of oil is. And I read somewhere, I don't know if it's true because you don't know how much stuff on, online is true, but it said that an average McDonald's uses 900, what's that, 100 gallons of oil a day. So it's like the amount of oil that, you know, McDonald's would use in a week and a half. It's a lot of oil. Verse 7. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make 800. So here we see the discount, it's a different ratio. And commentators have made all sorts of um, comments on this. Like maybe the 50% was on the olive oil because olive oil could spoil more easily. So they would give larger discounts there. The bushel wheat would spoil less easily. So the discount would be smaller. Um, one commentator, his point was that, and he, the guy actually went and lived in the Middle East for a long time, and his point was that basically the, the amount that these two um, discounts are, they're about the same value, and you could actually make an argument that the guy was basically changing one character in the group, I don't know, however this thing was written. He was just like adding a little thing to one of the characters just to give the discount. He's doing the smallest quick hand correction that he can do to give this discount. So how much is 20% discount here? If you think of a um, a 1,000 bushels, this is apparently the amount of wheat that you could have in uh, the container of a tractor trailer. Huge amounts. Apparently this is like how much you could get out of 16 very, very productive football pitches. Didn't mean much to me. It's like the area of, you know, McDonald Park? If you have two of them, that's about how much wheat it would be. Huge amount of wheat. And this isn't all the debtors as well, right? This is just a sample of two. You know, I don't know how many people were here. Okay? So the, you can imagine that over time, this guy is being, in addition to having been defrauded up to this point, from this point onwards, with the guy kind of doing his nest egg, he's defrauding the guy even more, cutting massive, massive quantities of how much he's, he's, uh, the rich man is owed. So he's just kind of doubling and tripling the amount that he's defrauded the, the, the rich man. So we'll move on to verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. It's like first thing off the bat. Hey, great job. Did a good job. Acted shrewdly. And then the comment, which seems to still be part of the story, not necessarily Jesus' commentary to it. For the people of this world, so this is the comment of the master, um, for the people of this world are more shrewd in their dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. So we're still in the story. This rich man, it's, it's hard because sometimes we're just like, we're just so used to like this common way of interpreting the parable. Okay, the rich man is God, the manager is somebody, and then God is Jesus. So Jesus is basically saying, I'm commending you for being shrewd. Okay, it's okay to be dishonest. You know? Seems strange. It doesn't jive with anything else. 
and he's commended for being shrewd. After all, he says, you know, the people of this world are pretty shrewd. Than the, they're more shrewd than the people of the light. So then the parable would be, you can learn good lessons from anyone, so take a good lesson. Here, use your money for, for good purposes, something like that. And then it goes on. It's like, okay, this is like the hardest verse in the whole section. I tell you, I don't know if this is the master or if this is Jesus at this point, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you'll be welcome into eternal dwellings. It sounds pretty similar to those passages which we went through in the... Um, Sermon on the Mount, which basically said, you know, you have heard it said, and I say, but I say to you, it, it does sound like that kind of formulation, does it? Doesn't it? So we we end up with this kind of morally suspect manager, morally suspect master, and our morally suspect Jesus is like, this is what is going on here? What are we supposed to do with all of this? Now. Point number one, that we're going to try to unravel all of this. Not all details of parables are to be in, interpreted equally and granted equal significance as all the other parts. Okay? So, ah, good, you know, this is like your trump card. Okay, so do you just park these verses on the side and say they're not important or they're somehow part of the par- uh, just part of the story, but you're not supposed to interpret them? But we do do that with other parts of the parables that we're used to. We somehow just have a sense of the bits that we maybe give more significance to and bits that we give less significance to. I'll give you some examples. When we look at the parable of the lost sheep, okay, we don't spend ages describing the shepherd who's you know, we all accept to be Jesus, leaving the 99. We don't spend loads of time expositing that bit, do we? We spend the time with the emphasis on Jesus the shepherd finding the lost one. Okay? How about the parable of the, um, the lost son? We don't spend loads of time on the bit where, Jesus to- where the master talks to the older son uh, who's complaining about the younger son who's gone away and, uh, you know, spent all the money on a profligate life. And we don't, we don't spend loads of times, because we kind of have accepted, okay, the older brother's probably the Pharisees. But then Jesus, what, is, or what does the master say to the older brother? He says, you know, you are always with me. Everything that I have is yours. We, don't, we, kind of, we spend time on the prodigal son, but that part of the parable we kind, of, we kind of leave. Now what I would like to suggest is that Jesus offers his own conclusion to this parable. And I think Jesus is doing something interesting. You're free to to differ with me on this one. So the first thing is, is that there is a general message that that you can use what is temporal for an eternal purpose. Just as a general principle, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And that seems to have been the interpretive framework that a lot of people have used when they have interpreted this passage. Because... As soon as Jesus finishes this parable, when he really seems to have stopped speaking in the parable and moved on to what he uses out of this, he moves on to verse 10, 11, and 12, and 13, which is, whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with much. And whoever has been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust them with true riches? And he goes on. But when you read that, you're like, how is this connected to the story? This seems like... You could have come up with a better story, Jesus, to talk about how to be honest, you know. 
Maybe this story is trying to like do the counterpoint to the, <clears throat> the prodigal son, because the prodigal son, he went and wasted all of his money. So now he's trying to give an example somehow of how you are supposed to use your money, but you don't use it for temporal reasons, you use it for eternal reasons. And then it still becomes hard. Okay, why is he commending all this? Then we move on further. I'm just giving more and more problems. I'm not going to give any answers here. Yet. I hope you're not expecting answers. <laughs> After commending all of this shrewdness and then suddenly talking about honesty, the response is from the Pharisees. Okay, I thought Jesus was talking to the disciples. So it is obviously he was doing it in earshot of the Pharisees. This is where the video camera would have been great because I think Jesus was talking some of this speaking to his disciples, looking out of the corner of his eye to the Pharisees. The Pharisees who loved, loved money heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people high, value highly is detestable in God's sight. How do we read this and somehow try to respect the content, context? And even after this parable, suddenly Jesus starts talking about divorce and marriage. And it's like, where does that come from? And it was kind of interesting. When you look at the Good News Bible, the next section of it is just like other sayings of Jesus. It's like, okay, we don't even have a category to put these sections in, so we're just other sayings of Jesus. It was interesting in the ESV Study Bible, when you look through the overall like, um, layout of Luke, it's got like the main parts, you know, his birth, his uh, preparation for ministry, his, uh, mini- uh, his uh, journey to Jerusalem. And then it has all the stories which, are, you know, which fit into this framework. And this parable was just missing right, from that framework. Very interesting. So, let's try to give an explanation for this. So, my, I'm convinced that what's happening here is that Jesus is actually addressing the complaint of the Pharisee, which started off in the beginning of chapter 15. You would have seen, as I've mentioned to, uh, beforehand, is that during this journey to, to uh, Jerusalem, we get the impression that the Pharisees are more and more and more trying to get Jesus onto their side. Pharisees have been inviting him for lunch and for dinner. Uh, they've tried to warn him. They're also watching him closely and kind of giving him difficult answers. And yet by the time we come to this parable here, they've been complaining Why is he receiving these tax collectors and sinners? So Jesus goes on and he gives three parables, which the the applicability to that complaint of theirs is why is he receiving them and eating with them seems pretty obvious, okay? One out of a hundred, you know, the the shepherd goes and he he goes and finds the lost sheep. One out of ten, okay, it's becoming, the the, the ratio is becoming smaller. Hit the lost son, one out of two. And then there's joy in heaven at the one who repents. There's joy in heaven at the one who is found. My son who is dead is now uh, now found. So it seems to me, it just seems strange that Jesus would just suddenly jump to just talking about as a general principle about using your money for kingdom purposes. And I think the reason why we can link this to the complaint of the Pharisees, the response of the Pharisees, but it's precisely the question that this parable raises. Who are these people that Jesus commends? And what kind of master is this? I think these are the questions. It's, it's, it's kind of a, something a little bit abstracted from the story, which is big enough that fits in with the context of everything else. 
And what I think Jesus is doing, the reason why these characters don't fit in with the rest of Jesus' parables, is that I think Jesus is actually using caricatures of how the Pharisees would have represented him. This is why the master doesn't seem to fit the masters that we've seen before. And why the dishonest manager is actually a description of the tax collectors and Pharisees, uh, tax collectors and other sinners. You've got this bad, man, this bad rich man who seems to commend sinners, which is what they were complaining about. And at the same time, you've got these people that are being dishonest with money, which is actually supposed to point to the tax collectors and the sinners. So what I think Jesus is doing is that I think he's taking the caricatures that the Pharisees would have had of the tax collectors and sinners and of Jesus, and he's using them in his own parable. And it's the parable which is completely upside down because it turns out that this unjust kind of rich man actually is on the side of the dishonest manager somehow. And this is precisely the complaint of the Pharisees. Why is Jesus on the side of the baddies? And Jesus uses their characters because what is their complaint is that Jesus is morally suspect if he's the one who accepts those kind of sinners. And the sinners, of course, and the tax collectors, they're the ones who are morally suspect too. So what, what is the question then? Can unworthy, sinful people be accepted by Jesus? And I think that what Jesus is doing is, is that he's, on one level, he's using this parable to say, yes, they can be. They are welcome. For all of their sinfulness and all of their ugliness, they are welcome. I welcome them. I draw close to them. There is a level of the parable which Jesus says, use your wealth for, for, for kingdom purposes, yes. But I think there's another level that what Jesus does as well, because when you look at the Pharisees' response, you see another thing as well. Jesus takes the parable and he takes precisely the people which are supposed to be the baddies and he says, actually Pharisees, you are those guys. You are the baddies. Because you're the ones who are actually interested in justifying yourselves in front of people. Actually, Jesus doubly does it, doesn't he? Because on one side, when, he, when the parable is phrased with the, with the Pharisees' characters... He says, you know what? These children of the world, these tax collectors and sinners, they're actually more shrewd than the children of light, the Pharisees. And then he switches it even again. He, takes the children, he says, you know what? Those sinful people are smarter than you. They've actually latched on to what is, what is important. You know what, Pharisees? You could learn a thing or two from these sinners and tax collectors. Because they've actually latched on to what is important. You can't serve two masters. And actually, they're following me. So they're actually, they're starting to show the signs that they're, they're serving a new master. But you, who are only interested in money and wealth and the, and the accolades of people and being justified in people's hearts, you're actually against me. So the seemingly righteous are condemned and the sinners are received and Jesus eats with them. You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. But God knows your hearts. Here's really the sting, isn't it? But God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. So actually what is kind of a, look at these people of the world 
who are actually shrewd, you're the ones who are the children of the light and you're not even being smart enough, street smart enough to kind of get on the wagon and use your wealth for kingdom purposes. But the last part of it is actually you're the bad guys. God knows your hearts. Hearts that were so rotten that in the space of a couple of chapters they will be looking for a way to destroy and murder him. Yet it would be a tax collector in a couple of chapters which would be fantastically born again and who would give away his money because the kingdom had come to, uh, into his heart. And what would Jesus say? He would say that salvation has come to this house today. So what can, we, what can we learn from this parable? We can learn a general principle as Jesus was talking to his disciples, but I think that there's layers of what was happening in this parable. I think we see, or we can see, the genius of Jesus to be able to address all of the people he's talking to his disciples. Learn how to wisely use your wealth. He's talking to the sinners, you are welcomed by me. He's talking to the Pharisees, you are actually the bad guys who are trying to justify yourself before people. And in an unexpected turn of events, finally, the very question that this parable raises is, who are the type of people that God will welcome? And what kind of God, what kind of person is willing to commend these sinners? It turns out to be God himself. And I'll close with this. Isn't it a good thing for us that God was willing to receive us and by his grace draw us to himself? I don't know if that was satisfactory for you, but this, this is the, the way that um, I think seems to address the passage. I would encourage you to open your Bibles this week and dive in to a passage which is a little bit more difficult, but is, after all, the words of Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, this is a difficult passage. And we pray that you would grant us grace as we study it. I pray now, Lord, that as your people go, that we would be reminded of the, one of the questions which is raised by this passage, Lord. Who are these kinds of people that you are willing to welcome and eat with? And what kind of God is willing to associate with sinners? Lord, and in both questions, Lord, we realize that it is by your grace that we who are sinners, who are outside of your family, have been welcomed into yours, Lord. For you loved us whilst we were sinners, Lord. And it was whilst we were still sinners that you died for us. So we praise you for your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen. To close with, I'm reading a section from Romans chapter 15. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, that with one heart and mouth you will glorify God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Amen.